This recording is a production of Mennonite School Services, a ministry of Faith Builders Educational Programs. More recordings are available on our website, www.christianlearning.org. This session was recorded at our teachers' conference on October 14 to 16, 2011, in Guy's Mills, Pennsylvania. Good evening, or afternoon, whatever it is. I guess it's afternoon. This has truly been a delightful experience to be with a group of people that I consider to be a very important asset to the church. I tell people that I don't know what would have happened to our Anabaptist fellowships if it wouldn't have been for the Christian Day School. If that change had not been made in the 60s and 50s, with the public school especially as it is today, I don't think we would have survived very well. So you're doing a great job and you're a very, very important asset to the church. And I want to commend you. Uh, I, think, I think our schools have, by and large, done a good job. I do a lot of homeschool evaluations. Our homeschools are doing a good job, too, according to the evaluations I've had to do. And so let's keep working together uh, at this great work. Now, <clears throat> uh, again, I uh, was trying to decide what to put under this title of uh, For Such a Time as This. And I could not resist at least one session focusing on the person of Christ. You know, when I was a boy growing up, there was a common statement that was often made from the pulpit, and I'm going to ask you if you've heard this statement. You're only as spiritual as you are scriptural. How many have ever heard that statement? That's a good statement, and I'm not here to disagree with that, but I don't think that's a good enough statement. You're only as spiritual as you are Christ-like. That's, I think, the crux of the matter. And so we want to be Christian teachers. We want to be Christ-like as teachers. But I want to just look at this quote that I uh, gave you on your handout uh, to show you uh, the standard that you're up against in being a follower of Jesus and being Christ-like and being a teacher uh, that has some resemblance to him as a teacher. There may be another Homer. There may be another Virgil. There may be another Dante. There may be another Milton, but there will never be another Jesus. Whatever surprises there may be in store for the world, Jesus will never be surpassed. He is the goal of all goodness, the summit of all thought, the crown of all character, and the perfection of all beauty. He is the incarnation of all tenderness, the focalization of force, the manifestation of might, the personification of power, the concentration of character, the materialization of thought, and the living illustration of all truth. He is the prophecy of man's possibility. We behold him and in him we see the realization of all human expectation, a leader greater than Moses, a priest greater than Aaron, a king greater than David, a commander greater than Joshua, a philosopher greater than Solomon, and a prophet greater than Elijah. He walks like a man, he talks like God. His words are oracles, his acts miracles. The crown of divinity rests on his brow. The scepter of universal dominion clings to his hand. The eternities flash in his eyes. Eternal rectitude is written in his face. The smile of Jehovah transforms his countenance. He is the expressed image of his father. Children cluster at his feet. Womanhood instinctively places the crown of purity on his brow. The winds obey him. A glance from his eyes and crystal waters blush to amber wine. The dead forget themselves and live. The lame leap for joy. 
ears which never heard thirst for the cry of, for the very sound of his voice. Sightless eyes deny their past and open their drooping lids to the beauty of his presence. Pain, palsied at his touch, vanishes. The name of Jesus stands alone. God has given him a name which is above every name. No creed can contain him. No catechism can expound him. Flesh of our flesh, very God of our very God. To be a Christian is to live in Christ. Unto him be glory, dominion, and power forever and ever. Amen. Now, we're not talking about a perfect likeness, although that is our aspiration. But we are talking about a credible likeness to Christ. And that is possible because after that tremendous statement in Philippians chapter 2 where it talks about how Christ humbled himself, wherefore, because of that, God highly exalted him, we finish reading that and we say, that's unattainable. But right after that, we have the example of Paul where he makes the connection between his experience and that very same thing and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Paul is saying to us, that it is possible for us to attain a credible Christ-likeness. The secret to that Christ-likeness is in the book of John, chapters 4 through 10, and I think we find it then once in chapter 12, where Jesus gives the secret, which is also there in Philippians, of that likeness that uh, we are all aiming for. And in all of those chapters, you have him saying, I do nothing but what my Father tells me to do. I say nothing but what he tells me to say. I do nothing in my own will. I always obey the Father. There's a statement like that in every one of those chapters. And of course, that's the secret to his life and will be the secret of ours. Now, what are some things that we can learn from the example of Jesus as a teacher? The first one I have listed there is loving the learner. Christopher Dock said that his, his outstanding qualification as a teacher was that he loved his children. Uh, now, if you go to Harrisburg, did you know that on the Department of Education, they have listed around the top of the, that department the outstanding educators in Pennsylvania, and Christopher Dock's name is there. He is considered an outstanding teacher, and he says that the reason he was an outstanding teacher is because he loved children. And so that is the first qualification that we need to have that resembles Christ, because it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, that Jesus was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And in most of the other passages it says he healed them and all, but here it says he began to teach them because of his compassion for them. He wanted so desperately for them to experience life more abundantly. And he saw them missing the mark. And he wanted desperately to tell them what they needed to do to experience life more abundantly. Someone has said, to live against Christ is to live against life. Because that's what life is all about. And he saw people who were made for a certain thing and they were doing the opposite. It's a little bit like if you would say, I want to make stone dust. So you go out and you get some stone and you put it in your blender. What's going to happen? You're not going to make stone dust to begin with. And you won't have a blender either. But that's what people are trying to do. They're trying to live against Christ. They're trying to live against the way they were made. We were made not to hate. Did you know that you were not made to hate? That even physically you cannot stand to hate. It will affect your body. You were made to love. 
And so Jesus, was, he saw that these people were destroying themselves, like E. Stanley Jones says, that the kingdom is, is built into the very molecules of the universe. And when you violate the kingdom, you violate yourself. And you get consequences, not results. And that's what Jesus was seeing. He was seeing people violating the very purpose for which they were made. And it just, his heart just went out in compassion. And the true teacher, that's how the teacher responds. He responds with compassion. He sees little children who need to be guided so that they can experience the best in life. And his heart goes out to them. We have many passages that refer to this in the life of Christ. Jesus loved the rich young ruler. So he told him to go sell his possessions. But it says he loved him. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, it says. And people loved to be with him. Zacchaeus received him joyfully. Jesus was always approachable. Nicodemus could come by night. You know, in our day, we have people who are so busy, they have unlisted telephone numbers and all of these things to isolate themselves from people. And when I see that, I grieve because they're missing the whole point. If they've, if they've generated a ministry that's that big, then they made a big mistake. They should have kept it more local. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I believe that. I believe all these tape ministries and CD ministries is generating a parish that people can't handle, and then they isolate themselves, and they're defeating the whole point. Jesus never did that. He, never, he sometimes went off into the desert, but then he came back and ministered to people. Nicodemus could come by night. The two disciples of John could say, where do you dwell? And Jesus said, come and see. He didn't let his disciples become his personal secretaries to keep the children away. In fact, he rebuked them for doing it. The sick were brought to him at sunset, Luke 4.40. It didn't say that he lifted up his hands and offered a mass prayer. It says that he laid hands on every one of them and they were all healed. It must have taken hours. At the end of the day when he was already tired, he loved people. His heart went out with compassion to every person who had a need. And he was always encouraging. <clears throat> the centurion, he said, great is your faith. I haven't found such great faith in Israel. Well, that must have been a tremendously encouraging statement. The Canaanite woman said the same thing to her. He said, be of good cheer on a number of occasions. Thy sins are forgiven thee. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He was, he was a tremendous optimist. And teachers must be that way too. They must have compassion for their children. They must see tremendous potential and hope for all of them and should relate accordingly. How many have ever heard of uh, Pygmalion in the classroom? Oh, you ought to put that in your library if it's still in print. I don't know if the, the thing is probably long out of print. This was done way back in the 60s or 70s. It was the celebrated, I heard about it in educational psychology. It was the celebrated Oak School experiment in California by Rosenthal and Jackson. They wanted to see what would happen, whether there was any difference between students that teachers believed in and students that teachers didn't believe in. So what they did is they took 18 students, 18 classes in a large school system, and they gave them a test which they called the Harvard Test of Inflected Acquisition. Uh, that's how you get people to think this is a great test. It was actually just an IQ test. Uh, so they gave this test to all the students, and this test was to be a marvelous instrument that would predict students that would bloom late and, and, and uh, at, in these upper grades, that they would all of a sudden bloom and they'd become good students. And this test was supposed to be able to pick these students out. So they went to the teachers after they gave the test, and they said, now this student and this student and this student is going to make great progress this year. This test predicted that. 20% of the students were picked out as likely to make tremendous progress and be late bloomers. 
Eight months later, they tested the students again. And all of these students that they had picked out had made tremendous progress. And the test didn't do anything. They, the students were picked at random. But the teachers believed that that's what was going to happen. And they responded that way to the students, and it made that, that much difference. Fenelon, Fenelon the, uh, the great devotional writer, said, To love a person is to see him as God intended for him to be. That's what it means. And that's what Jesus saw. He looked at Peter, this wibbly-wobbly man, and said, you're going to be a rock. And Peter did amazingly become a rock. But his love was not sentimental. He could sharply rebuke Peter. But it was after he complimented him and said, on this rock. And, and then Peter made a statement. He said, get behind me, Satan. But Peter knew Jesus loved him. He could speak strong words to people because they knew he loved him. And he loved people to the end. I'm amazed at Judas. Read the account at the Last Supper for Jesus to give that sop sir, almost surreptitiously that only John could understand who was sitting on the other side. Judas almost had to be sitting on his left, which was a favored position. And the sop was a favored gesture. I mean, Jesus was trying right up to the last to show Judas his love. And I think he washed Judas's feet. I think Judas participated in the whole thing. He loved to the end. At the very end, he helped a thief find peace with God. He was concerned that the sins of those who crucified him would be forgiven. This man cared about people in a way that is incredible. The story is told of a little girl by the name of little Annie in a mental institution outside Boston. That's a true story. Who was locked in a dungeon in the mental institution because she was almost like an animal. She attacked people who tried to visit her. She would respond to nobody. They didn't know what to do with her, so they locked her in this dungeon in the basement in a little cage. And there she was, so she wouldn't hurt anybody. But there was an elderly nurse in that hospital who believed that there was hope for even the most hopeless. And she was about ready to retire. But she decided that she would go every day. She couldn't go in the cage. This girl was too dangerous. So she went every day, and she sat outside the cage, and she tried to talk to the girl. The girl paid no attention to her. She had no indication the girl even knew she was there. But every day she brought brownies and left them outside the cage. The girl would not reach out and get them. But the next day when she came back, they were gone. So every day she would go and sit there and talk to this girl about love and kindness and would leave the brownies. And soon the doctors began to see that there was a change in this girl. And she began to change. She began to talk to this visitor. And there came a day when they were able to move her upstairs into the regular programs that they had. And there came a day when she was to leave the hospital. But she wouldn't leave. She insisted on staying and helping other cases that were hopeless. It was little Annie that nurtured Helen Keller. Because little Annie was Ann Sullivan. Jesus would have understood this story. Because in his mind, nobody was hopeless. And you don't have any hopeless students either. So, the first way that Jesus taught was by an unconditional, unending, undying love and hope for the people that he worked with, that he ministered to. The second thing is to secure attention. 
<clears throat> now, you're not going to influence anybody if you don't have their attention. In fact, I, uh, speakers should be very sensitive to that. I do see speakers sometimes who speak and half the people are sleeping. I never could understand that because you're not getting anything accomplished if nobody's listening. Jesus was a master at getting people's attention. The people heard him gladly. It says in that one synagogue, all the eyes were fastened on him. And they would say, they, some people were sent to arrest him one time, and he arrested them. They said, never a man spake like he spake, and they didn't arrest him. <laughs> Even his bitterest critics couldn't stay away. What was the secret to such amazing ability to secure attention from his listeners, from his pupils? Well, he wanted attention because he paid attention. He paid attention to the things that people understood and knew. He talked about sowers. He talked about wheat. He talked about tares, leaven, mustard seed, catching fish, seeking for pearls. His, 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 his life and, and ministry is just full of the kind of objects and concerns and interests that normal people had. Somebody has said Jesus knew three books. He knew the book of the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. He knew nature and he knew human existence. So the first thing is, he's talked in concrete terms about actual objects and interests that people had. He didn't go off in a bunch of theory, all right? He kept his conversations right down to the nitty-gritty and talked about actual things and incidents. Number two is he did not belabor his point. He passed quickly from one phase of his topic to another. Read Matthew 13. I mean, it's just one parable after another. Read the Beatitudes, one Beatitude after another. Jesus did not go on and on and on long after he had exhausted his subject. That was supposed to be a hint. <laughs> he talked about a lost sheep, then he talked about a lost coin, then he talked about a lost... Go look at his, look at his sermons. They, they, nothing's belabored. It's just one, it's, it's staccato. One thing after another. That's how he taught. Number three, he had an interesting personality. He was one of these magnetic people because he was always doing the unexpected thing, which was the right thing, the realistic thing that people were so concerned about their image would not do. He just did it. He could go to visit Simon the leper and in comes a, a, a disreputable woman and he can love Simon and he can love the woman and he can have Simon all perplexed. Okay. And people would say, is this a Messiah? It must be. I can't imagine the Messiah is going to do any more than this man's doing. And I mean, he had everybody in a constant question about things because he was such an interesting person just being realistic and living life the way it was supposed to be lived in a world where people were artificial most of the time. And if you live life realistically, you'll be an interesting personality too. If you could just forget about all the conventions, artificial conventions, there's some good ones, but the artificial ones. <laughs> Just forget those and all your false modesty and be real. And you will be an intriguing person. You will be an interesting teacher. Number four, he was a realist and an idealist. All right? And you can be both and you must be both. There are some idealists, of course, who aren't realists, and there are some realists who aren't idealists. But Jesus was both. He could aim for the stars with his teaching, and he could also make that translatable into real life. He put idealism in shoe leather. Number five, and we'll deal with this a little bit later, he told one story after another. He was a master storyteller. And that's going to be one of my main points. You can violate every rule in the books of pedagogy. You can violate what I had on the board last night. You can violate every rule if you can tell a good story that's to the point. In fact, I have 
A couple records at home of Ken McFarlane, who was rated many years ago, I'm sure the man's not living anymore, as the most outstanding speaker in the United States by the Chambers of Commerce. And I was always intrigued by this man because he was a master teacher. But he was a master storyteller. That's what made him such a great teacher. In fact, the, the speech that I enjoyed the most and played the most to most people had two points and two stories. The whole, mess, the whole speech was two stories, very good stories, the one I will never forget. It was a story that was supposed to convince you that if you want to outsell, it was about salesmanship, by the way. He wasn't a Christian, I don't think. If you, if you want to outsell people, you have to outserve people. And he told a story of an old couple that went to a furniture store, and this man failed to sell them any furniture. But when they went to the car, he started bringing stuff that he saw that they liked as they walked through his store and just put it in their car and said, here, take this home. And they said, well, why? And he said, well, <laughs> you came down here to buy furniture from me, and I failed. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to make up for my failure. <laughs> <laughs> So he said they went home and they said, well, where are we going to buy our furniture? And after a couple of months, the lady said, you know what? I think we should go down and buy furniture from that guy. <laughs> I never forgot the story. I mean, it's, I don't have all the details, but storytelling is just tremendously important. And we'll talk about that later. All right. Number three, he knew how to apply the law of apperception. We, apperception simply means you learn the unfamiliar by what you already know. That's how we learn. And so he knew how to do that. In fact, he told people the secret of his ministry when he said, Every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things both new and old. And he knew how to take the old, the familiar, and introduce people to the new. He talked about old wineskins. And he was talking about the kingdom, that this isn't going to fit into the old wine school. Well, they could picture this because he was talking about something they knew about. Matthew 13 is a whole series of things they knew well. So are tares. I've already listed them. It's interesting. Children, we, we all have a tendency to try to connect, even if the teacher doesn't do it, we all still have the tendency to try to do it. And children sometimes make some very interesting connections between what they know and what they're hearing. Uh, there's a little boy that could not understand why the congregation was always singing about the consecrated cross-eyed bear. They were really singing the consecrated cross-eyed bear, but uh, he didn't understand that concept. And so he was interpreting it from what he knew, and that's what it sounded like to him. When I was a little boy, we used to sing the song, Before, my, before the Throne My Surety Stands. Let's see, what is that song? I forget what it is right now. Oh. Oh. Anyway, you know the song. Well, I had an Uncle Shorty. And I was too young to know what S-U-R-E-T-Y means. And I was too young to read. And they would sing this song about my Uncle Shorty standing before the throne. And I, I could not figure out what Uncle Shorty was doing before the throne of God. But Jesus talked about spiritual life welling up as water from an artesian well. Beautiful picture. Beautiful way to picture an unending source of fresh, clean, refreshing water, life flowing out of a person. And he was doing it all the time. Teachers are masters of analogy. And then we have telling stories. He was undoubtedly the world's greatest storyteller. 
I do not like sermons. I'm going to be very honest with you, and I don't think anybody else does. Preachers, are you listening? <laughs> I do not like sermons without stories. I don't like sermons that are pure theory. The Bible wasn't written that way. I never calculated the percentage, but I think you will find that probably two-thirds of the Bible is stories about people. I'm glad they don't all read like Romans. I'm glad we have Romans. But we read about faith, and then we have some theoretical discussion about faith, but the best example of faith, the thing that gets through the best of most people, is Peter there walking on the water, who lost his contact with Christ, and down he goes. There we have a picture. There we have a story. In Jesus' teaching, we have 28 parables and 25 stories. That adds up to 53 anecdotal type of of illustrations. One-fourth, somebody's actually counted that one-fourth of his spoken words, if you actually count the words, one-fourth of them are stories. The term parable occurs 50 times in the New Testament. Why? Well, because the story is going to catch the attention of everybody, from the youngest child that can understand language at least, to the oldest adult. Everybody's going to listen to the story. And they're all going to hear it on their own level. You know, we say, well, you know, maybe this group doesn't understand what I'm saying. If you want to get them all, if you want to have a lesson for everybody in the audience, tell a story. And they'll all hear it on their own level. The prodigal son, the the, uh, youngest people, will understand this boy uh, rebelled against his dad. He went, lived a bad life, and finally gave up and came home. That's one level. On another level, the older people, especially the parents, are going to understand the yearning love of this father who went out there every day and looked for this boy. And when the boy came back, he said, Father, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. And he had planned to say, make me one of your hard servants. But the dad never let him say that. He took him in and made him uh, a guest of honor. The children won't really understand that. I mean, they'll hear those words, but they won't understand that. The older people will understand that. And then there will be some people in the, in the audience who will understand the sin of the perfectly obedient son. And they'll all understand something from that story on their ability, the level of their ability to understand. So it captures and informs both children and adults, each on his own level, Stories are, can, be, can be and usually are simple and easy to understand and yet pr- profound and very suggestive in meaning. How many have read in the literature book that we did at CLP, The Frill? Well, that frill becomes a symbol, a symbol that is absolutely infuriating. And uh, <clears throat> that's, that's a discussion all of its own. Number two, so it, it, gets, it gets everybody. It teaches a lesson to everybody on their own level, if it's a good story. Number two, stories arouse the emotions to support the intellectual idea that is taught. I dare you to read the frill without becoming ferociously angry by the time you're finished with the story. If you do, your heart must pump ice water. And you should be angry. Number three, it allows the hearer to discover truth for himself. You know, we all like when we come up with some wonderful idea about life that we discovered. 
Well, truth does that. In fact, the Bible says we're made that way. It says it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. And so, stories have a way of slipping truth right past our defenses. King David committed an awful sin. And Nathan had one of the hardest assignments anybody ever had, to go tell a king that he had sinned. The king had the authority to have him put to death. That was not unusual in those days. What would you have done? Well, Nathan goes and tells, and you all know the story, he goes and tells him this story about this little lamb, and David becomes very angry before he realizes what he's done. He has judged himself. Nothing but a story could have done that. That's what stories do. They they sneak in past our defenses and speak to us about things we wouldn't hear in any other way. Jesus used the story to reveal truth to his friends and to conceal the truth from his enemies and those who didn't want to learn. Number four, stories unite the ideal and the real. It gets the hay, like Donald Barnhouse used to say, it gets the hay down off the hayloft and puts it on the barn floor where the cows can get it. The story is told of an American tourist who paid a visit to a renowned Polish Rabbi, Hofetz Chaim. He was astonished to see that the rabbi's house had only a chair, a table, and a few books. So the tourist said to the rabbi, Rabbi, where is your furniture? And the rabbi said, Sir, where is your furniture? Well, he said, I'm a tourist. I don't live here. I'm only passing through. And the rabbi said, So am I. See what a story can do? The fifth thing about a story, it is remembered long after everything else is forgotten. Good stories are not forgotten. They're remembered. Now, how many know the name if I say Ethel Barrett? But there's a whole generation that's grown up that has not known Ethel Barrett's storytelling ability. In my mind, she represents the epitome of the good storyteller. So just to treat you to a good story. I'm going to play you one of hers. It'll take about seven minutes. Okay, I think you'll enjoy this. Now, it has some sound effects in it uh, that Jesus wouldn't have had. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, I would like to say something. Jesus never used drama. He never said, now, John, you stand over here, and now, Peter, you stand over here. Now, John, you pretend to be the bad guy, and Peter, you pretend to be the good guy, and let's see this acted out. He never did that. In a world where that was the favored type of communication, it was a Greek world where the Greeks and the Romans had exalted drama, and that's basically how they communicated. He never used it. And that's another whole subject. I won't discuss it, but you know where I'm coming from. But a good storyteller will give you both sides and give you characters, and, will, uh, and I don't have any problem with that because they're not impersonating any one person. They're impersonating everybody uh, in a very temporary way. So, see, I can rationalize, too. Well, actually, Phoebe wasn't working. 
She went to work and wrapped herself up in a cozy blanket and sat by the fire. If you want to know the truth, Phoebe was lazy is what she was. Yeah, Phoebe was lazy. Sooner or later, Phoebe was no exception. One morning, she went to work, wrapped herself up in a cozy blanket, and sat by the fire and dreamed away. When suddenly, around the corner, footsteps. Footsteps. It was the missionary doctor. He came up to where Phoebe was dreaming and stopped right in front of her. Phoebe. Yes, sir, doctor? Phoebe, what are you doing? Phoebe, the cupboards are a mess. Yes, sir. You haven't given out the medicines? No, sir. And the beds aren't made? No, sir. And the patients aren't bathed? No, sir. And the blanket you are wrapped in belongs to one of them? No, sir. I mean, yes, sir. And he gave her a shriveling look. <laughs> now get to work, he said. And don't let this happen again. Phoebe got to work all right. And she promised never to let it happen again. after the first scolding, and Phoebe was one of these. She had to learn her lesson the hard way. The very next morning, lazy Phoebe went to work and wrapped herself in the same cozy blanket and sat by the fire and dreamed. When suddenly... Phoebe, it was the missionary doctor, but he didn't look a bit angry. He looked very pleasant. Good morning, Phoebe. Good morning, Doctor, sir. Are you well, Phoebe? Oh, I am well, thank you, Doctor, sir. Phoebe, would you come out to where the patients are for a moment, please? Do you mind? Oh, no, Doctor, sir. Just wait till I get unwrapped from this blanket. Oh, that's quite all right here. Let me help you. Oh, he was cheerful. Lazy Phoebe got herself unwrapped and followed him out to the room where the patients were. And when they got there, all the other nurses were there too. Hmm. Phoebe looked at them. They all looked cheerful. She looked at the missionary doctor. He was absolutely beaming. Phoebe, he said, would you please get the medicine book? Phoebe did. She handed it to him. Let's see now, he muttered, turning the pages. And then he turned to the first bed. And Phoebe? Yes, sir, doctor? What does this patient get? She gets medicine drops in her eyes, doctor, sir. Then he turned to another nurse. Put the drops in Phoebe's eyes. My eyes? My eyes? Why my eyes? Put the drops in Phoebe's eyes. No! exactly what they did. Then the good doctor turned to the next bed. And this patient, what does this patient get, Phoebe? Phoebe? She gets an aspirin, doctor, sir, and she gets some very bitter medicine, and her chest gets rubbed. Very good. Nurse, give Phoebe the medicine. Oh, no, no, good doctor, sir, and 
and rub her chest. Oh no, 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 <laughs> By this time, poor Phoebe was slumped in a chair, gasping for breath, and glad that it was all over. But it wasn't. The doctor was walking over to the next bed, and the next patient. Telling a story is an art. And I think every person who aspires to teach or preach should do what he can do to master the skill. All right. <clears throat> so, stories. Uh, that's part of this variety that we had on the board last night. Uh, 
bringing out truth in different ways, and stories is one way to do it. All right, the fifth thing that I have here is asking questions. <clears throat> the Gospels record over 100 different questions that Jesus asked. How is it that you sought me? What seek ye? Why reason ye in your hearts? Which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven, thee arise and walk? And you can make a huge list of them. Here's the one I like. When, the, when the, <clears throat> the man came to him and said, what good master, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why callest thou me good? And uh, it would be interesting to, to know what you think he was saying there. I think what he was saying, he's, then he said, there's nobody good but God. And he knew he was going to give this man a really hard assignment. And so he said, do you really believe that I'm God? You called me good. There's nobody good but God. Do you really believe that I'm God? Okay, go sell what you have. So that's, those are the kinds of questions. We just have a whole list of them uh, from, the, from the Gospels. The question moves the hearer from passive listening to active thought, and Jesus was always asking questions. Francis Bacon said, the skillful question is half of knowledge. And there's a reputed saying of Jesus himself, they who question shall reign. Those who know how to ask good questions. Somebody has said, Jesus' aim was not to lighten the burden of thought and study, but rather to increase that burden, to make men more conscientious, more eager, more active in mind and moral sense. He came not to settle men's souls, but to provoke them. Not to save men from their problems, but to save them from their indolence. Not to make life easier, but to make it more educative. He called men to keener study, deeper devotion, and more intelligent and persistent reasoning. So he was a great question answer, uh, asker. And those of you who teach should uh, work on that skill. That's a tremendous skill to develop, to be able to ask the question, and often a rhetorical question, that the answer is obvious just from the question, but then the harder questions as well. All right, number six. I say posing problems, but after I studied the problems that uh, Jesus dealt with, most of those problems were brought to him. They weren't questions that he posed. So you can change that to facing problems. Most of them were brought by other people. Facing a problem is the beginning of real thinking. It forces people to translate glib theory into sturdy reality. Maybe you've heard this story of the ministerial students in the seminary that were all of them were to prepare a sermon on the Good Samaritan. So they all prepared their sermons, they all preached their sermons, they all had their sermons critiqued, and then they all were assigned a city in the church where the, uh, yeah, a church in the city, where they were supposed to preach these sermons. So all these seminary boys went out to preach this sermon on the Good Samaritan in the, city, the churches around the city. But the teacher had managed to put a situation in the way of every boy as he was on his way to preach the sermon of somebody who was in tremendous need, or at least looked like he was in tremendous need. And there they were. Each boy met someone in tremendous need on his way to preach the sermon about the Good Samaritan. And every one of them told the person in need, I'm sorry, I don't have time to help you. I have a schedule to meet. And they went rushing on to preach their sermon on the Good Samaritan. Problems. Jesus liked to do that type of thing. You know, it's problems that take us into the depths of reality. Who was the first person in the Bible to see that there had to be a resurrection of the body, reality? Who was the first person? 
see, I've confronted you with a problem. <laughs> Was somebody before Job. Abraham. Abraham. He reckoned that if God had promised all of the blessings that he had promised to Abraham were in that son, if that son were burned on that altar, the only way that he could reason this out was that there had to be a resurrection of that son bodily. But he arrived at that at, at, with a drastic problem on his hands. Somebody mentioned Job, the same thing. How did Job see this? Job thought he was going to die. And there was this huge injustice that had been done to him and was being done to him. And he was going to die with it totally unresolved. And he believed God was a just God. And the only way he could make any sense out of God's justice was that he had to finally be resurrected so he could be vindicated. And those two men would never have seen those truths. The, the, the central reality of the New Testament that we only get those glimpses in the Old Testament and in those glimpses, and I think David too, David saw it and I think he saw it out of his extremity. We get it from men who were trying to solve a very difficult problem. And I know in my own life, in fact, much of what you're hearing this week about what I believe about reality, I learned by hard experiencing the crucible of problems where I was driven to understand the realities that I was facing. You trust God. Do you really? What about death? We had a son that died four and a half years ago. And you're forced to look at that. Do I really believe this? That I will see this boy again? Problems. Jesus help people face these problems that took them deep into the realities of life. Why don't your disciples fast? He gave the parable of the wineskins. Why don't your disciples observe the traditions, the washings of the elders, and, and all these, I mean, you can list the problems. The seventh thing was his use of Scripture. Jesus had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. I'm amazed Often he is quoting the Old Testament or very nearly quoting the Old Testament when you wouldn't even think about it. I get the impression of a man whose mind was so saturated with that Old Testament, probably much of it memorized, that it just, that's just how he spoke. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 1 Chronicles 28.9, if you seek him, he will be found of thee. Old Testament scripture. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. To comfort all that mourn in Zion. Isaiah 61, 2. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 11. Swear neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Isaiah 66, 1. And you can just go right down through his teachings. In fact, I'm going to make a suggestion that the majority of his exact words were Old Testament quotes or nearly Old Testament quotes. If you're going to be a teacher, you must master the Scriptures. It says that they are the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, we spend a lot of time interpreting and explaining Scriptures to people. 
I guess I've become impressed in recent years that we should be saying the exact words of Scripture as often as we possibly can. Jesus did it. It was his example. Because that is the pure word of God. When you start to interpret it, some of that's your words. But when you speak to people the exact word of God, I heard a story one time of a bunch of boys on a train. And a friend of theirs got on who they had played cards with, but he had become a Christian. And they tried to entice him to play cards with them on the train. And, he, and they were gambling. And he said, no, he wouldn't. And they kept fussing and fussing and fussing. And finally, he said, give me one of the cards. And he took that card, and he, of course, he knew the card, the symbols and everything on it. And he took those symbols and quoted scriptures and scripture and scripture in relation to every one of those symbols. 30 years later, this is a true story. 30 years later, one of those boys came back and said, I left that place with those scriptures ringing in my ears and I could not get away from it. It was the pure word of God. And Jesus gives a very good example. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I'd love to, now there's one sermon I wish that it had CDs. Don't you think it's a pity that, they didn't, that God didn't make sure that they had invented the CD player before Jesus was born? I take a dim view of technology, by the way. I think it's significant God didn't do that. I think we're way too dependent on those things. Do you know what Henry David Thoreau, who wasn't a Christian, said about technology? And by the way, it was the railroad in his day. First of all, about the railroad, he said, we don't ride on the railroad, it rides on us. And this is what he said about technology, improved means to unimproved ends. Now, I really am off my subject. Anyway, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You say, well, he was God. Well, he was God, but he limited himself, and he had to learn those scriptures just like you would have to learn them. His words are heavily laced with scripture. Every time I I meditate on this, I am challenged. We should master the scriptures and be able to explain them and teach uh, and quote them. That's what I'm trying to say. Actually quote them as frequently as we possibly can to the people we're ministering to. And finally, point eight, he provoked to action. Modern psychology, educational psychology says there will be no impression without expression. Well, Jesus certainly obeyed that principle. He gave people things to do. Come, follow, go, see, preach, watch, pray, do likewise, wash, offer the gifts, sin no more, arise, take up that bed, turn the other cheek, pay the tax, make disciples of all nations, and you can just go on and on. He was constantly giving people directives and commands and things to do to practice the principles that he wanted them to practice. It was not just theoretical knowledge. It was put to practice. He said, he that doeth the truth cometh to the light. He that doeth the truth is getting to the light. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And he calls us to follow him as teacher. We went over these rather quickly, but then I told you Jesus didn't belabor anything either. (laughs) Love the learner. Secure their attention by paying attention to the things that you know they're interested in. Apply apperception. Learn how to skillfully make those analogies that tie the known to the unknown. Tell lots of stories. You cannot tell too many stories unless you're off the subject. I've heard that too, by the way. Uh, Ask questions. That gets people's minds engaged and and makes them participants. Face problems. Help people wrestle through the issues of life. 
And by all means, lace it all with Scripture as much as possible and then give people things to do so they learn. I conclude by referring to one of the greatest teachers besides Jesus himself that the world has ever had. His name was John Amos Comenius. How many ever heard of him? All of you who went to secular college heard of him, didn't you? You heard that he was the person who did the first book for children that had pictures in it because he thought literature for children should be on the children's level. Orbis Pictus. How many have ever heard of that historic volume? (laughs) But what they don't tell you in college is this man wasn't just trying to write children's literature. This man was a godly Moravian bishop who took Jesus seriously when Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And this man designed a curriculum to be taken to the nations and to teach all people in the whole world. I never saw the curriculum, but that's what he did. Maybe it doesn't exist anymore, but, but he had this tremendous educational plan to actually put into, implement and put into practice what Jesus said. Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. Well, John Amos Comenius was not able to implement his plan. He did do Orbis Pictus. And you can go to the library, or at least a historical library, and get a copy of it and see his little picture book that he did for children. But his country was overrun. And the last picture we have of John Amos Comenius is this godly bishop, which, like I said, they never tell you this in the secular college, that this man had a purpose for this literature that he wanted to design for children and adults as well. And the last picture we have of him is standing on top of the, one of the mountains of Czechoslovakia, fleeing to the north as the Roman Catholics overrun his country. But he stood on top of the mountain and he said, My work shall be a hidden seed, and it will yet bring forth fruit. He was the last bishop of the old Moravian Hussite church. But out of his influence arose the Moravian church you've heard about. And Augustus Frank, who was one of the greatest teachers and trained the most missionaries probably of any single person. These people were all people that were influenced by this man's example and what this man had done. And you all know the stories of how the Moravians went to places where no one else would go and did a tremendous work for God in carrying out this verse. So I want to encourage you. Teaching is a great ministry. And I believe with John Amos Comenius that what you're doing is a hidden seed. If it is the pure truth, if it is pure reality, if it is pure the teaching of Jesus and God, it will bear fruit. So labor on and try to be as good a teacher as you can. You maybe won't completely attain this, but you can have a credible likeness to Christ so that people can look at you and say he resembles Jesus. Not perfect, perhaps, but a credible resemblance of the master teacher. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you tonight for Jesus. Father, he didn't write a thing, but there probably was no person who taught more people down through the thousands of years than he has taught. Oh God, help us to stand in our little spheres and accurately resemble him and his methods and his passion and his compassion. Lord, just place a special supernatural love in the hearts of all these teachers for every one of their students and help them, Lord, to make the difference. We pray that not one of these children would be lost, but that your good word, the good seed of your word, would spring up and bring forth fruit in every life. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.